0: (laughs) this is dw news and these are our top stories the german government has strongly criticized moscow's decision to shut down the russia operations of this network deutsche Welle. the foreign ministry ordered the closure of dw's moscow bureau and is revoking the accreditation of our colleagues there it is a retaliatory move for Berlin's decision to ban the German-language programming of Russia's state media broadcaster, RT. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has lost four more key aides as his popularity plummets over lockdown parties. Johnson's chief of staff, private secretary and communications director have all resigned. And policy unit chief Munira Mirza quit over Johnson's controversial comments on Monday, attacking opposition Labour leader Keir Starmer. U.S. President Joe Biden says the leader of the so-called Islamic State is dead after a targeted raid by U.S. forces in northwestern Syria. Biden said Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi blew himself up as U.S. special forces approached. Several other people were also killed during the operation. This is DW News. You can get much more news on our website at DW.com.
1: There is no slowdown in Russia's military buildup along its border with Ukraine. Satellite photos offer proof. Despite that, the Kremlin today lashed out at the U.S. for deploying 3,000 more troops to Eastern Europe. Russian President Putin's do as I say, not as I do drumbeat on Ukraine, NATO and the U.S. It may sound like a broken record in Washington, but here in Berlin and in Paris and especially in Kyiv, they're hearing fewer echoes of a president preparing for war and more and more sounds of a president waiting for someone to call his bluff. I'm Brent Goff in Berlin. This is the day.
2: Strong measures taken by Ukraine, NATO and the United States appear to have deterred an invasion. We need to keep this up. We need to keep up our response as if we're taking this absolutely 100% seriously. I think Presidents Biden and Zelensky are staring him down successfully. Call the bluff as you were because, you know, in past practice, Putin often hasn't bluffed and has done something. Mr. Chairman, I believe
1: President Putin will blink. Also coming up, if you are watching us, you are probably not inside Russia. Today, the Kremlin shut down DW's Moscow bureau in retaliation for Germany shutting down the German language propaganda broadcasting arm of RT, Russia Today. This is another sign that Russia is not interested in, uh, and the Russian government is not interested in press freedom and freedom of
3: opinion. But I can only say... Um, even if we have to leave the country, we
1: will I, intensify reporting on the country. To our viewers watching on PBS in the United States and to all of you around the world, welcome. We begin the day with worries over a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine that are no longer worries of an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine. The White House says that it will no longer use the word imminent to describe what Russia may be planning with its more than 100,000 soldiers positioned along the border with Ukraine. Now, this is important because words matter. They matter even more when you and your allies are supposed to be reading and speaking from the same page. And that is precisely what has not been happening. U.S. President Biden has predicted that Putin will decide to launch an invasion. But just this week, we heard from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. that an attack is not imminent. This shift in language is overdue for some European allies, including the Ukrainian president who has told Washington to tone down the rhetoric for fear that it could be creating a situation more so than describing one. That said, there appears to be agreement that keeping up the pressure on Putin is the best way to deter war. Mr. Chairman, I believe
2: President Putin will blink. I think Presidents Biden and Zelensky are staring him down successfully. Putin appears for now to be seeking negotiations. The strong measures taken by Ukraine, NATO, and the United States appear to have deterred an invasion, at least for now. However, until Mr. Putin withdraws the large military force from Ukraine's borders and sends it back to normal duty stations, we should continue to take the strong steps that seem to have deterred an invasion so far. So we should be very careful about the idea of this being a bluff, but I know that many of our allies are a bit skeptical about what they see is happening. So, In the larger strategic um, context, which I think uh, my colleagues uh, and I have already laid out, we need to keep this up. We need to keep up our response as if we're taking this absolutely 100% seriously. Call the bluff as you were, because, you know, in past practice, Putin often hasn't bluffed and has done some.
1: My first guest tonight has used several words to describe U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine and Russia, including the words not sane. Lawrence Wilkerson is a retired U.S. Army colonel and served as chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell from 2002 until Powell's resignation in 2005. He joins me tonight from Falls Church, Virginia. Mr. Wilkerson, it's good to have you on the program tonight. And I don't want to steal your thunder here. So how is U.S. foreign policy regarding Ukraine and Russia, at least in the last 20 years, not sane?
3: I think the fundamental reason, and the reason that I would describe it that way with a lot more than Ukraine expansion in general, for example, is Article 5. The reason NATO is arguably one of the most successful, if not the most successful, political and military alliance in human history is Article 5. I don't think you're going to find too many treaty commitments, even after Westphalia, that have that kind of commitment in them. Now we are launching operations in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq, with NATO partners. Article five, mm-hmm. an attack on one is an attack on all. Every country, all 30, well, all 29 others will come to the aid of the one attack. No American is gonna risk nuclear war for Montenegro, nor Latvia, nor Estonia, or Lithuania, let alone Ukraine. This is insanity.
1: Do you think that NATO should guarantee in writing to Russia that Ukraine will never join NATO or that NATO will stop expanding eastward? Can't now because it's become
3: too much of an issue with us and prestige is at stake, unfortunately. I think what we're hearing right now, what I'm hearing right now, that we are recognizing Vladimir Putin's genuine concerns about ballistic missile defense launchers that could be cruise missile nuclear tipped cruise missile launchers and put Moscow and other targets in Russia under extraordinary duress because of the short warning time. I think that's the real issue here. And I think we can back off that. I think we can talk and we can diplomatically deal and we can say ultimately, okay, we're not putting any BMD launchers in Ukraine. Maybe not anywhere in Ukraine, but certainly not anywhere uh, that would be really dangerous for the Russians. So I I think that's the issue, and I think that's what we're dealing with, and I hope it is, and I think we can find a solution
1: around that. Well, I mean, could we reach, uh, let's call it uh, an understanding between Washington and Moscow that there will be no further expansion? I mean, I I guess you're, you're talking about you know, trusting each other, and is there any trust yeah. reservoirs we can dip into at this point? Well, you, you you go back to to
3: my time. It seems like eons ago now, but when Edward Shevardnadze and Mikhail Gorbachev and Jim Baker and George Bush George H. W. Bush were talking, Colin Powell was involved. Colin Powell was in Warsaw instructing the Warsaw previous Warsaw Pact General mm-hmm. Officer Corps in how to work in a democracy. Those were those were halcyon times. They were great times. We were talking about Russia being a partner in NATO, ultimately even possibly being a member of NATO. Where it went astray was William Jefferson Clinton and the beginning of political political opportunity in expanding NATO and getting everybody titillated about it, including the nuclear Weapons complex, including the military industrial complex, making money off selling aircraft to Poland and every other country we could bring into it. So it got out of hand. It got terribly out of hand. But that demonstration of comity, that demonstration of cooperation and so forth that existed in 91, 92,
1: 93,
3: it could be brought back if cooler heads would prevail.
1: Well, let's go back to 1991 for a moment. You know, we had the U.S. Secretary of State, James Baker. He spent a couple of weeks in Europe at the time that the Partnership for Peace Initiative was being discussed. And as I understand it, this would have been an incremental, gradual plan for achieving NATO membership that would also have taken Russia's security concerns into consideration. Now, what I've read is that Mr. Baker... He liked the idea, but when he got back to Washington, President Bush told him, I'm nixing that. Is that that one of the biggest failings right there with how we've been handling Russia?
3: Well, I wasn't in the room if that occurred, but I did get a debrief almost every time that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff came back from a National Security Council meeting, Cole Mm -hmm. Powell, And those debriefs were pretty thorough, and nothing like that ever was debriefed to me. And I can't imagine that Colin would have kept that me had it actually happened because he was ecstatic. He was euphoric that not only had the Cold War ended, but he was going to Vienna to lecture Warsaw Pact generals. He was talking with Warsaw Pact generals about how NATO was going to be a partner with them. Mm-hmm. And that in the future, perhaps even some of them could be members of NATO. Could, could they meet all the requirements? As well? Actually, the requirements for being a member of NATO are rougher than the requirements of being a member of the European Union, if you look at them closely. Mm-hmm. Um, all about democratic governance, lack of corruption and so forth and so on. And if you applied all those requirements, none of the new people we've let in would have been let in. I well, guarantee well, you.
1: Well, Mr. well I'm we trying. Don't. Well, I'm trying to figure out though where and it sounds like it was in the 1990s. Where is it, though, that we lost this, you know, this unique opportunity to change NATO, to change the definition of NATO and to bring Russia in, take advantage of the changes of the early 90s? the, The Berlin Wall had fallen and to have peace in our time. Where did we lose that grand opportunity?
3: Well, this is what I teach, and you're asking me about things that I I really do know the details of. Not only do I teach it, I was there. I took the Marine Corps War College Seminar when I was director of the War College to Bill Perry's office, the Secretary of Defense for Bill Clinton, and we had hour-long sessions with him. He was as euphoric and as genuinely pleased about what was happening as Colin Powell had been before, Mm -hmm. and so was his general shock as Veley. What happened was in the second election that Bill Clinton had some difficulty, he thought, getting reelected in. He needed some political opportunities that uh, showed his bona fides in foreign policy, too. So he began thinking about changing what had been a very slow, incremental, you say it's okay, we say it's okay process into a slam bang, let's go. And all of a sudden, NATO expansion became his one of his number one foreign policy objectives, and it just took off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been going ever since, and as I said, it's, it's led to an ins- insane situation, 30 countries in NATO. There is no American out there in the hustings who understands what's going on, first. But second, when they're told that they are committed to nuclear warfare for some of these countries they couldn't even find on a map. Yeah. NATO's not going to last much
1: longer. Well, well, let me ask you this, Mr. Bush. You served in the Bush administration, the second Bush. Um, I want to make sure we get that right, which took the U.S. to war in Iraq. The trust that was broken here in Europe, that lingers to this very day. We see it in our reporting here all the time when you we're bet. talking about foreign policy. Um, there's this suspicion that the U.S. wants war or, or, or that its end game is to have a perpetual conflict demanding the production of weapons. Is there validity to that suspicion?
3: There certainly is within a certain group of oligarchs. I'll call them that. That's what they are in this country. And I suspect elsewhere too, there, there is that inclination and there's that desire. You know, I was there when George W. Bush uh, essentially used the F word with Schroeder in the yeah. Oval Office. Uh, my boss came back and debriefed me on that one. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, Schroeder hated Bush and Bush hated Schroeder. And mm-hmm. Joschka Fischer and Colin Powell, under the table trading cooking instruments to Yoska and German beer to Powell at midnight sometimes in his office, kept the German-American relationship together. Mm-hmm. But it was very torturous, very difficult. But we have started. I remember when Colin